Good morning. All right. Hey, can I ask you to do me a favor? Would you stand with me? And I'd like to read the passage of Scripture we're going to look at together today. We began looking through the book of First Peter or two weeks ago, and then looked at the second half of the cha- first chapter last week. And today we're going to start on chapter 2. I'd like to read that for you uh, together, and then, then we'll look at how it applies to our lives. God said through Peter, He said this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation." Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, we'll come back to that, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits you. You may be seated. Wow, God's Word is amazing and powerful. And I want us to look at today, together, how this can apply to our lives. He said, and I told you we'd come back to it, foreigners and exiles. That is just one of numerous places in Scripture where we are told to to live life with that mindset as a foreigner, an outsider, an exile, um, an alien, maybe. In some translations, it is used in that sense. And so today, we want to continue this series that we're calling Aliens because God wants us to remember that our citizenship is not of this world. We are not of this world. We are aliens in the sense that we should understand that while we live here, our true home, our true citizenship is in heaven. So I want to ask you, if you haven't already done it, open your Bible. If you have one, you can find it. If you don't have one, I mean, you can find it there in the seat around you, in front of you maybe, or under you. But uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, because I want to show you how this incredible Scripture that sometimes we might kind of read over and go, I'm not sure really what that all is about. I want to show you how this can apply to life today. For 14, 15 years or so in my 20s and 30s, I served as a youth pastor, working with middle school and high school students. I loved it. It was awesome, kind of like Chad Young does here for us. And it was an amazing time in ministry before I worked with grown-ups. And uh, while doing so, I met a different youth pastor who occasionally was also a substitute teacher at his local school. And he talked about an experience, an interesting experience he once had. He explained how he was teaching sophomore history, I believe, um, a class of sophomores, I mean, one day, and he finished his material early, 
said he had a few extra minutes at the end of the class, so he decided to lead them in a time of discussion. And he asked them on the spur of that moment, he said, I want to know what you think the number one problem facing teenagers today is. He kind of assumed they would talk about, you know, uh, maybe gender identity or suicide or drugs and alcohol or violence or something along that line, but they unanimously agreed that to them, the number one problem facing youth today is boredom. They said, we're just bored. We, we have nothing to do and no reason to do it. He thought, wow. Well, he went to another uh, school, a different class, just about a week later or so, and kind of had a similar situation. So, he asked them some similar questions. And at one point, he even said, if I could bring a young or, I mean, a youth expert to class today, and you could ask him any question, what would you ask him? And one young man on the front row of that class a week later stood up and, and said, you know, I'd like to ask him why I should even get up in the morning. Again, kind of confirming this same thought. Now, most of us in the room today, which were kind of light, uh, first service was packed. We had our, an amazing women's retreat that I know a lot of the ladies finished this morning, and they all came first service. But um, but anyway, most of you in this room today are from either the baby boomers generation or maybe Generation X. That's more like my age. Some of you younger people are part of what is called the millennials. Um, and if you're maybe 16 years old, maybe 17 and under, you might be called the generation, or yes, see, what is it? Uh, the uh, Generation Z. And one of the things that millennials and Generation Z have in common is that they have, according to studies, uh, struggled to recognize what purpose in life can look like. What is life really all about? So my question for you this morning is, how about you? What about us? W what is your primary purpose in life? Do you have a good reason to get up in the morning? Something that kind of turns your crank and gets you excited and makes you feel like, all right, this is why I am alive. This is what I'm all about. Or do you, like some of the younger people in our world today, kind of go, yeah, I don't know. What is life really all about? I think a lot of older people, not just young people, struggle with this. Isn't it interesting that Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, maybe you've heard, it, heard of it or even seen it, maybe you've even read it, um, broke all kinds of records when it comes to books being sold and read. Um, listen to this. It sold over 35 million copies in just the first five years, and it's been out much more than that now, so I'm not sure what the total is now. It was, listen to this, it was number one on the New York, New York Times bestsellers list for a record, a still standing record of 114 consecutive weeks. People from every walk of life want to believe that their life has a distinct purpose. They want to know about purpose. Well, many years ago, Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the original 12 apostles, in fact, one of Jesus' closest friends, wrote a book, a short five-chapter book. He followed it up with a second book as well, but we're looking at 1 Peter, and really it could have been called, if he gave it a whole tit a title for the whole book, he could have called it The Purpose Driven Life. And he continues where we left off last week when Rob was preaching. He begins out by pointing, connecting the dots from last week to today, that you don't discover the meaning of your life by looking within yourself or indulging in pleasure as, as the world would often tell us or teach us. You begin with God. You put away the things of the world, and you focus on a different, a, a heavenly citizenship. And you put away things like, and he gave us a list, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. And he goes on to say, and like newborn babies who crave and need milk, 
We, as Christians, should crave what brings maturity in Christ so that we can, and I love the phrase, grow up in our salvation. See, you were made by God, you were made for God, and until you fully understand and embrace that, purpose may be a little bit hard to attain. You know, what am I really here for? If you don't understand that you were made by God and for God, you may struggle, you probably will struggle in these ways. And as Christians, we need to be reminded of such things because we tend to get forgetful, we tend to get discouraged and out of focus, and we struggle. In fact, thinking of that, let me ask you, why do you think so many people that consider themselves Christians commit suicide? Did you know? I mean, the statistics are alarming in terms of numbers. I can't remember how many funerals I have preached for people who have come to that place where they feel like there's nothing left to live for and have taken their own life. I can't remember how many, but I know that many of them who have done so have been people that were active, involved in a church, considered themselves Christians, and yet still got to a place where they felt like there's just nothing left to live for. There is no reason to live in their mind, and they made that decision. Now, sometimes that's because of a chemical imbalance or maybe a struggle with bipolar personality issues, but I think suicide is always an indication that that the person has lost their focus. They have lost their reason to live because they have failed to understand what God wants them to understand about our reason to live. How about this as another indication of these struggles? Why do so many Christians fall back into old habits and get entangled in, in struggles that they had thought they were, behind, they were past, they'd left behind, and yet then they find themselves falling off the wagon, getting back involved in things that maybe they haven't done for years. Well, again, I would say that's usually because of losing sight of purpose and yielding to fleeting appeals of this world instead of keeping their mind and eyes on the next world to come in heaven. One more, why do Christians, so many Christians that were involved in a church, whether it be this one or some other church, why do they get disillusioned and upset and leave? Maybe go church hopping to other places, never really finding a place to settle in, or maybe just avoiding church at all altogether and no longer attending anywhere. Why does that happen? Well, maybe it's because they got their feelings hurt or were disillusioned with church leadership in some way, but I think generally speaking, they would persevere and stay the course if they understood the purpose that God had for them in life. Viktor Franco, who survived horrific torture in a Nazi concentration camp, once said, I think this is a powerful thought, he said, if a man has a why to live, he can endure any how. Wow, that's well said. So let's continue with verse 4. If you have your Bible, look at that with me. I want to show you how God clearly speaks through Peter to show us that we do indeed have a reason to live. That's the title of the message, a reason to live. Purpose-driven lives are at our disposal if we will just listen and hear what God wants to say through His Word to us. He says this in verse 4, As you come to Him, meaning Jesus, as you come to Him, the living stone rejected by humans and chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now pause there. And notice that Peter compares the church to a building, to a a place, a house with living stones. Now, that's not the most common or familiar analogy that he uses. If you have uh, 
studied Scripture much at all, you know that the more common, much more common analogy would be that of a bride, that we are, as the church, the bride of Christ, and Jesus as the bridegroom or, or the husband is uh, welcoming us and all of that. Or you might also remember, as we see here in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, that we are often compared to a body, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. That, that analogy is used in Scripture as well. You know, you might be a hand or a foot or an eye or a leg or whatever, and we, all the different parts need each other. But here, in this passage that we're looking at today, Peter uses the analogy of a permanent building, a building that is constructed with what he calls living stones or bricks. He points out that Jesus is the most important stone in this sanctuary. He is the living stone, having been raised from the dead. You know, people say diamonds are forever, but of course that's not true. Uh, Only Jesus lasts forever in that sense. He is the living and precious stone beyond compare, more valuable than any other stone, any diamond or ruby or anything else you can imagine, because He is God's one and only Son. He is the Messiah, the promised one. And Peter quotes Isaiah then next in verse 6, which, oh, by the way, is a little sidebar. Whenever somebody in the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, the most common way to do so is to quote Isaiah. That's the most quoted book out of the Old Testament, and that's what Peter does here. Verse 6, he says, For in Scripture it says, according to Isaiah, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. Those who put their trust in Christ as the living stone will never be put to shame, he says, because he is a saving stone. You could even say he is a stepping stone in the sense that there is a great chasm between us and where we hope to, where we need to and want to be in, in a place of grace and forgiveness and eternity with him. There is a chasm that we cannot bridge. We cannot get there on our own. And it is only by what Jesus did by dying on the cross for us that we have a bridge to get there. So in that sense, Jesus becomes a a living stone or a stepping stone to get us to eternity. But I love that phrase, he who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Somebody say the word never. Come on, like you mean it, never. Never be put to shame. I love that concept, meaning that you will never be embarrassed by your Lord. You'll never be disappointed in Jesus. If you put your trust in Him, you will never be led astray. He'll never lead you down the wrong path or allow you to fall or get hurt in that sense. Before I, um, uh, when I was a younger man, I used to ride a mountain bike a lot. This is actually my son's bike because mine's kind of tore up. But anyway, I used to ride a bike a lot and um, and enjoyed it a, a lot. When I moved to Colorado, I'm like, man, mountain biking is the thing. It is so incredible. I love it. And so my uh, girlfriend became my fiance in December of 93, right? And, uh, and uh, which will be 25 years ago this December. And about a week or so after proposing, I decided to buy her a mountain bike. She had at that point an old 10-speed that was kind of dilapidated and falling apart and tired and worn out. So I threw it in the trash, bought her a new mountain bike. She came home from, she was a teacher, teaching kindergarten. She came home and said, what is that? And I said, I threw your other bike. You did what? And I said, oh, I bought you a way better bike. And I didn't need that. Well, she got on the bike, started riding around in the cul-de-sac there in front of her parents' house. And like, man, this is nice. She'd never been on a mountain bike before. They're comfortable. The gears shifted nicely, unlike her old bike. And 
It just fit her really well. She's like, this is great. I'm excited. And I said, yeah. So I can't wait to just now teach you how to, um, how to go riding with me on obstacles and off-road, not just on the road. I mean, that pavement's boring. I mean, we've got to go do some fun stuff and single-track things in a place called Palmer Park. If you know, where, know anything about Colorado Springs, it's a fun place down there. And so I said, I want to teach you how to do that. She goes, okay. And again, she fully trusted me because I had never, at, never yet at this point led her astray or allowed her to get hurt in any capacity. I mean, we'd been engaged a whole week already. So, you know, uh, I had... I had a good track record in all these ways so far, and so I said, well, how about this? What you need to learn to do is just pop a little wheelie to get over obstacles, because there's lots of rocks like this. I don't know if you can all see it, but rocks like that, whenever you go on any single track, you're going to find things, whether it be tree roots or other things like that, and you've got to learn how to just hop over those, and, and she goes, how do you do that? And I go, you just, when you're pedaling, you just got to have your, you know, your feet are on the cranks, and as you're when you get to an obstacle, you just make sure that one foot is at the top, and you push hard and pull up on the handlebars at the same time. You do a little wheelie. Everybody knows how to do that, right? Well, not everybody, apparently. And so I said, well, well rather than just talk about it, let me just show you. So, um, so, I, so I said, here, just get on the bike, and we'll just follow along. Follow me, and I'll show you what to do. And so off we go, riding around. And, and um, as we're riding, I thought, well, she needs to go up and down some curbs. And so first of all, we'll go down. So I rode up some... Um, driveways and then off the curb, and that was easy. She had no problem with that. She's like, all right, I can do this. She's smiling and just loving it, having a great time. And said, all right, well, now you got to learn how to go up curbs because that will simulate rocks. So you just come up to one and you just, you know, just do a little wheelie and you just hop up over it and bounce right over it. It's really easy. Anybody can do that, right? So I showed her that, and, um, and uh, you know, so we came to another one, and I just, and then I said the infamous words that will live in all of our memory, in Kim and I's memories, at least for as long as we've been, as long as we're married, I just said, all right, just do what I do. And so we're coming along, and as we come up to the rock, you know, I just top up over, and then what happens next will last in my memory. Because I did that, I'm looking back, and here she comes, smiling, approaching this curb. She's all feeling good, and just thinking, all right, he said, do what I do, so I'll just do that. So she comes up to that curb, and uh, this rock kind of simulates that. She came up to the curb, but the whole get the crank at the top part, she didn't really understand that. So she came and just tried to yank up on the handlebars, and that doesn't really work. So she came to this curb going pretty fast, actually, probably a good, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles an hour with a big smile on her face, and she went bam and hit that curb and just went flying over and splatted hard on the ground and I mean just crashed and burned. I think she bruised the sidewalk. She hit it so hard and my heart just stopped. You know, I was out there and I jumped off my bike and I came back running to her and I helped her kind of untangle. I mean, she's just all wrapped in that bike and I unpeel her or peel the bike off of her and, and we sat down in somebody's grass. We're on the sidewalk. There are houses all around and anyway, and she goes... I go, are you okay? And she goes, did anybody see me? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I don't see anybody, so I guess not. She goes, okay, good, because no, I'm not okay. And all of a sudden, the tears started to come as I noticed blood was in several places. I mean, she really, she was hurt pretty good. And so, including her one-week-old engagement ring had taken a lot of that as she landed hard, and so it was bent, and the diamond was barely still holding on, and the blood was dripping down her arm and her leg, and, and all of that. And, and uh, then we sat down in that grass, and she's trying to catch her breath in a lot of pain, and she looks at me, and she just goes, just do what I do? 
what, what was that all about? And I said, I'm sorry. And, well, needless to say, the experience led her to realize that unlike Jesus, I sometimes will lead her astray and let her down and allow her to, in fact, as Scripture says, be put to shame. Because then in just a moment after that, remember the first thing I told you she said? Did anybody see me? She was embarrassed, didn't want to be seen. An older gentleman that was in the house looking out the window came walking out and he goes, hey, are you okay? That looked really terrible. And Kim just looked at me like, I'm going to kill you, you know. And fortunately, she still married me. But uh, the point is this. If you trust in people, even an amazing and godly and handsome husband, it doesn't matter who it is to be, it doesn't matter, all people will let you down. At some point, in some way, people are all fallible. All people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We make mistakes, and we fall. And so others will say, well, then in that case, I'm just going to trust in myself. I'm not going to trust in any person But even in that scenario, you're going to be in trouble because you will let yourself down, because you are flawed. What we need to understand is that we are to put our trust in Jesus. And if we do so, we have nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to worry about, because He will always lead us in the right direction, never let us be put to shame. In fact, in Hebrews 13, it says, God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Our God is that awesome and that good. Amen? That is who we are connected to, and there is so much comfort in understanding the truth of God's Word that He will never leave us, never abandon us, never let us be put to shame. In fact, when you get to Judgment Day, you have nothing to worry about and everything to be confident about because the Bible also says in Romans 8 and in other places similar things, therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Somebody again say never. Never. Come on, like you mean it. Never. Never will I leave you or forsake you. And then somebody say, no. There is no condemnation. Zip, nada, nothing, none whatsoever. Will there be any such things for those who are in Christ Jesus? That is such a beautiful and encouraging and and, uh, uh, just a, a, a heartwarming kind of thought. But our text teaches that He, Jesus, can actually be a stumbling stone for those who do not believe. Look at how the Scripture continues. Look at this. Verse 7 says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. In other words, again, just a very comforting thing. But, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. See, the same stone that enables one person to step up can cause another person to stumble and fall down. The person who doesn't want to obey and follow the Lord stumbles and falls and gets hurt because of their disobedience, because of disbelief. It's kind of like the rich young ruler in in, uh, Mark chapter 10 when he came to Jesus. If you remember that story, he came and he said, oh, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And um, Jesus looked at him and understood and knew his heart. The guy told him, hey, I've done all these commands. I've kept all these things. And Jesus said, okay, how about this though? How about go and sell all that you have and give that to the poor and then come and follow me? See, Jesus knew not only the guy's heart, he knew his hurdle. And so when Jesus told him that, the Bible says the man stumbled and he walked away because he had great wealth or maybe because the great wealth had him, either way. And there are people today who come to church eager to be inspired and fired up and fed and emotionally charged up, but when it comes to some of the tougher requirements and things that we read in Scripture, 
whether it be things Peter said or Jesus said or Moses or whoever, they look at some of that and they stumble and they fall and they say things like, well, you'll never see me in that Baptist tree or you'll never see me get coerced into putting any money in that, in that uh, bucket as it comes around. I know churches just all, all they care about is money or you'll never see me get, get uh, somehow guilted into serving in the nursery. I don't have to do that. You know, my kids are long raised and not going to guilt me into any of those kind of things. You know, I like this whole idea of being a Christian. I like the idea of being saved, and I like the idea of, you know, God. I, all these things are great, but I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to be a weird person. I, I, I think I need to go find a church that's a little less rigid. You know, I, I go to church to be inspired and fed and, and encouraged and all of that. I, I don't go to church to hear about sin and repentance and surrender, you know, those kind of things. Verse 8 says, they stumble because they disobey the message, which, which is also what they were destined for. The Message Bible paraphrases that verse like this. It says, they trip and fall because they refuse to obey just as predicted. But even though some stumble over Him and reject Him, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Though rejected by men, he's the foundation of the church. John 1 says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In fact, they murdered him. But God brought him back from the dead, and Jesus was made the cornerstone, the living cornerstone of the church. Now, when you or I become a Christian, the Bible says that God adds us to his church. You become a living stone. Did you see that in, in our text a couple of times? Living stone in his kingdom. In other words, you're part of the structure, part of the living organism known as the church. Or in the Greek, it's the ecclesia, the church, the grouping of people. You are, you're part of the structure. You're not just another brick in the wall. You are an integral brick in the wall. Not just another one, a key, integral one. You see, a Christian without a church, it's kind of like a, kind of like a tuba player without a band, or kind of like a wide receiver without a quarterback, or like a glove without a hand. I mean, they, they need one another. They go together. And in a church setting, or as a Christian, we need one another also. You know, think about it. It takes a lot of bricks to build a, a brick house, right? A lot of bricks. And so it's natural or kind of easy to think, well, one individual brick isn't that significant. But actually, that's not true. In a brick house or a brick structure of some kind, every single brick is important. If you take one brick... And, uh, and find that it, it is faulty and maybe it starts to crumble, well, what happens? The mortar around that begins to crumble, weakening the adjacent brick as well. Then on top of that, a lot of times moisture will get in, and if that happens uh, during the colder months at least, then that water will come in and freeze and expand, breaking other bricks, and pretty soon the whole structure becomes in, uh, unstable and uh, faulty, all because of just one brick that we are tempted to think, oh, it's just one. It's not that important, but it is. Now, if that brick were just an isolated brick out in the yard or something, it wouldn't matter so much. But a brick that is part of the wall, part of a whole structure, is very important. Now, when you become part of a church, you become part of an institution that has eternal significance. Uh, Jesus said this to Peter in Matthew 16. He said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, that is not true of the bank or of the school or of the hospital or even the White House. 
But the church of Jesus has endured for over 2,000 years, even though it at times has been mismanaged, even though at times it has been attacked from every imaginable angle, and you are part of it as another integral brick in that wall. You are part of the church of Jesus, and that means you have greater significance than you would if you were just an individual or just an individual brick or rock or stone that were just laying out in the field somewhere. You see, if you get arrested for drunk driving, or let's say you um, flip somebody off because they're camped in the, in the left lane on Highway 24 and just driving you nuts, or let's say, let's say they are all about whatever issue on Facebook or social media of some kind, and you see that, and you get into a debate about it, and you turn mouthy and rude and say some really hateful, ugly things on Facebook. If you do those kinds of things and yet are known to be a Christian, a part of the church universal and specifically Impact or some other church, you weaken that individual church, and you, even more than that, you damage the influence and effectiveness of Jesus in our community. Whereas, again, if those things were done just by an individual, it's not connected to any church, eh, you know, it's still not good, but it's not so damaging. We all have to realize that being part of a church magnifies the cost of mistakes. Now, on the flip side, the, uh, the reverse is true as well. In a very good way, if we are part of a church and part of a group, there are things that can be done together that can never be done as an individual. For example, let me show you some pictures. First of all, you know, about uh, what it was, just a couple of months ago on July 4th, when 20 or 30 people, there were others that didn't make the picture, when we all gathered together and put on a vest that said impact and just as volunteers walked around on July the 4th and picked up trash to help our community, I noticed as part of that group that others noticed, that others were watching us. Maybe they were unchurched or dechurched people, but they watched us. We had an impact in that way. Or uh, shortly before that, when we, as a church came back in a fairly large number, a lot of people gathered, and we formed an assembly line, and we packaged, what was it, ten or 11,000 meals, and uh, prepared those for people in other countries that have less, and almost all that now has been given to either Mexico or people in Africa with firsthand experiences and people that we have connected there. That's incredible. Or, speaking of Mexico, when we have gone in the past to build a house like that one, or maybe you're going to do that here coming up in Thanksgiving. If you want to know more about that, please come and talk to me about it or talk to Mike Galvin or one, anybody on our mission team. But you can, as you look at that picture, there's a brick, uh, a, a cement brick building off to the left, which actually is what we replaced with this much nicer house. It's stucco and it's got electricity and three rooms in it and windows and doors and all that. And that other house had very little. And of course, in the summertime, cement brick houses are like you know, like an oven, and in the wintertime, they're like a freezer. And so, and, and yet that cement brick house was way nice compared to some of the other houses that we have given to people or replaced for people by giving them a new house. Um, and so when we get to go as a group and, and go and do things like that, be part of things like that, we get to make an impact and become part of the church. There is nothing like the church being the church. And the church can't do things like that as an individual. I mean, most of those things are very hard to do all by myself. But when you partner with others and you do it together, man, beautiful things can happen. And if you are a member of the church or this church specifically here at Impact, you, you play an important role. Now, maybe you're not a brick on the front wall that everybody looks at and sees, 
Maybe you're a brick in the side wall or in the back wall or whatever, but that wall is still just as important to the integrity of that building as any other wall. It may not be visible to everybody. You may be doing your thing in the back, you know, when nobody's watching, helping pick up trash or put away communion cups or prepare them before service starts, or, but maybe you're on stage with the worship team, or maybe you help with children's ministry in the nursery, or maybe uh, there are all kinds of things that you could get involved in. Celebrate recovery on Monday nights, or women's Bible studies on Tuesdays or Thursdays, or life groups on other nights. There are all kinds of ways that you can serve and be involved. And if you are doing something like that as part of the organization, God can work through you in an incredible way. You see, every Christian is called to perform some function in the church. Every Christian is to be a pastor or a minister. It's not just the guy who wears the title or stands up here on a regular basis. All of us. That's what Martin Luther meant when he talked about the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of all believers. A concept that is based on the next verse in our text here. Look at this, verse 9, and other verses throughout Scripture that say similar things. But Peter continues, he says this, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You are part of the priesthood of all believers. God has called you to declare His praises and goodness to to those living in darkness. He wants you, just as much as He wants me, to be His witnesses to others. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus said that based on the geographic location that he was standing in when he talked about that, when he said that to those people listening. If he were standing here today in the flesh, I think Jesus would say, I want you to be my witnesses in Woodland Park and in Teller County and all of the United States and even to the ends of the earth. He wants us to recognize that we are his ambassadors. We are part of The priesthood, a holy priesthood, he says. God has given you an honored status and a vital role in His kingdom. Talk about purpose in life. If you don't find purpose in life by recognizing that God, the creator of the universe, has said, I want you to be part of my team, to represent me and go into this world, man, you you, you need to think about that and let that resonate and soak into who you are. A reason to live. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And as you go and represent Him and declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into light and go and tell others that are in darkness about this light, you need to do so with the right attitude and the right approach. There's an old saying, it's not a Bible verse, but there's a powerful old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's very true. It's well said. And in that same respect, we need to, as Christ followers or or, uh, ambassadors of His, we need to make sure that we speak the truth. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4. We need to speak the truth, stand up boldly for truth. But he says, speak the truth in love. Not just just speaking truth, but doing it in love. In fact, Titus, uh, the book of Titus talks about how we should do all that we can to make sure that the teachings of Jesus are attractive. Because if we don't do that, you can speak truth Everything coming out of your mouth may be totally perfect and accurate in terms of factual um, accuracy, and yet if your attitude stinks, you're still just like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, God says through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We need to learn how to declare His praises, but do it the right way. Verse 10 in our text, he says, once you were not a people. 
but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you and I have received mercy, we need to be quick to show mercy and kindness and all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, the verbal message and the attitude that we have are kind of like the handles on pliers. You need both of them or else without either one of them, you lose leverage and are no longer a useful tool in anybody's hand. You need both the content that is accurate, but also the right attitude as you approach it. Let me close with the same thought that we began with. Peter finishes this first half of chapter 2, um, or yeah, chapter 2 with two more verses. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, or you could say aliens, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. We are to live as foreigners or strangers, or aliens in this world. Don't fall in love with this world, friends. Don't do it. Don't fall in love with this world because this world is not your home. We are just passing through. And we need to keep that mindset all the time at the forefront of who we are. Max Lucado, a great author and pastor, gave an illustration about that. He once said, uh, he, compared, he compared us being Christians to us riding on airplanes. He said, you know, never once have I been on an airplane and heard someone say when we landed, oh, do we have to get off? Can't I just stay on the plane? I love these cramped seats, and I'd love some more stale pretzels and apple juice, you know. Nobody ever says that. Every time you're on a plane and you taxi up to the, to the gate and you hear that familiar ding, you know, everybody jumps up out of their seat, grab their carry-on bags, and they're ready to get off that plane. Now, they're grateful for the plane. Everybody's thankful for the plane. It's a wonderful means to an end, but it's not the real goal, is it? Everybody recognizes that while the plane is necessary, it is also temporary. It is simply a means to an end. And in that same way as Christians, we need to see our lives similarly to how we look at airplanes. You know, they're, they're wonderful. They're great. and We want to enjoy them. We want to thank God for them and take advantage of all the benefits as best we can and enjoy all of that. But recognize that that's not our final destination. It's just a transportating, you know, a way to get us to where we want to go. So let me ask you, how about you? Are you confident that your final destination is where you're headed, that you're on the right plane? Do you have confidence that you have a reason to live? Are you focused in the right way that God wants you to? If not, why not take care of that right here, right now? A man named David came forward during first service and said, Okay, I want to be baptized. Let's do it right here, right now. So first service people got to meet him and be part of his baptism. And um, If that's you, if you're like, yeah, I don't really know if I'm really on the plane yet. I, I kind of want to board. I, I want to, but I'm not there yet. You do it right here, right now, today. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing, and I want to invite you to come. In fact, would you stand with me right now? And as we sing, as the band leads us in this song, if you feel like, you know what, I'd like to make that commitment, then come forward. I'd love to meet you, talk with you, answer any questions as best I can, pray with you, or I have somebody else pray with you. If you've already boarded the plane and are on that road to getting where you want to go, I want you to remember that you are part of a holy priesthood. 
that God has called you to be His ambassador in this world, to make a difference, to stand up for Him, to live a life that, of, of purity and, and holiness and godliness. But it is a privilege that we get to do these things together. And I want to encourage you to remember that as you go through life, that while the world may throw at you a lot of ideas and thoughts, but that you need other things, that Christ is really all you need. Christ is enough. That's what we're going to sing. And I want you to picture him saying, yes, I'm all you need. I'm here. But I want you to picture more than that. I want you to understand that Jesus is here today saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you come to him if that's, if you hear his voice? But let's worship with all we've got and just say, with all our hearts, together as the church, Christ is enough.